Our sermon text is taken from Mark chapter 7. Mark 7. We'll begin in verse 1. Then came together unto him the Pharisees, and certain of the scribes, which came from Jerusalem. And when they saw some of his disciples eat bread with, un, with defiled, that is to say, with unwashed, that's ceremonially unwashed. They're not a bunch of uh, uh, just dirty men. This is ceremonial washings. With unwashed hands, they found fault. For the Pharisees and all the Jews, except they wash their hands often, eat not holding to the tradition of the elders. And when they come from the market, except they wash, they eat not. And many other things there be, which they have received to hold as the washing of cups and pots and bronze vessels and of tables. Then the Pharisees and scribes asked him, Why? Walk not the disciples according to the tradition of the elders, but eat bread with unwashed hands. He answered and said to them, Well, has Isaiah prophesied of you? Or, or he would say something like, Isaiah had a word for it. You're a hypocrite. As it is written, this people honor me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. Howbeit in vain they do worship me, teaching for doctrines the commandments of men. For laying aside the commandment of God, you hold the tradition of men as the washing of pots and cups and many other such things you do. And he said to them, Full well you reject the commandment of God that you may keep your own tradition. For Moses said, Honor your father and mother, and whoever curses his father or mother, let him die the death. But you say, If a man shall say to his father and mother, It is Korban, that is to say, a gift by whatsoever thou, thou mightest be profited by me, he shall be free. That is, free of his responsibility to take care of his parents. And you suffer him no more to do aught that for his father or mother. So you don't have to do anything more. Making the word of God of none effect through your tradition, which you have delivered. And many such things, like things do you. And when he had called all the people to him, he said, Listen, hearken unto me, every one of you, and understand, there is nothing from without a man that entering into him can defile him. The things which come out of him, those are the things that defile the man. If any man have ears to hear, let him hear. And when he was entered into the house from the people, his disciples asked him concerning the parable. And he said, Are you so without understanding? Do you not perceive that whatsoever thing from without enters into the man, it cannot defile him because it enters not into his heart. Read that again. It enters not into his heart, but into his belly and goeth out into the drought, purging all meats. And he said, that which comes out of the man, that defiles the man. For from within, out of the heart of men proceed evil thoughts, adulteries, fornications, murders, thefts, covetousness, wickedness, deceit, lasciviousness, an evil eye, blasphemy, pride, foolishness. All these evil things come from within. They defile the man. Let's pray. Lord, we absolutely must understand this. Uh, it is unfortunate that too many Christians have come to the conclusion that it is the things from without that defile when it is the things from within. We, we end up, Lord, turning your word upside down by believing that somehow the external things of life are more important than the internal things of life. And we go through rituals, habits, traditions, and many times there are good things. But when they replace the important central things, they become bad and evil even in and of themselves. 
So for us today, we need a reminder that the, all the evil of the world begins in the human heart. And that when we enter out into the world, Lord, we go into a world with an evil heart. We take it with us. Everywhere we go, it's there. Help us, Father, please, to recognize this truth and be changed because chapter 7. It's good to see you all again. I missed you last week. I would rather be here than anywhere else. And uh, it was uh, fun to travel. It was great to teach. I'll say more about that tonight. Um, I'll be talking about missionary travels tonight. Uh, I was struck this week about how the Apostle Paul, just how tiring it must have been, all the travels he took and all the places he went. And uh, I went to some pretty wild places this week and uh, last week, and I want to tell you some about that. That'll be tonight. Thank you for praying for me. Um, and uh, it is the middle of the night, according to my <laughs> last two weeks. But I'm here, and I'm awake, and my brain is functioning uh, a little bit. So, um, uh, you know, that's good. Um, so we'll see how, how it lasts. Um, it's supposed to be the middle of the night. I, I got home about 6.30 and went to bed about 9.30. Woke up at kind of the normal time, a little earlier than that maybe. And uh, so we'll see how it goes. Uh, over the course of the traveling, I, I learned about how people live in other countries. And I was surprised to find, for example, that my Japanese driver, drove his, the, the steering wheel is on the wrong side of the car. It's the British side of the car, but they drive on the correct side of the street. So they drive British cars, apparently, um, on, um, on American-style streets. That was a little confusing, but I, maybe it's not every car, but it's all the cars that I was in in Japan. In the Philippines, where I was, you go to Manila, it's a really large city. It's kind of modern, but I, did, I didn't stay in Manila. I went uh, about an hour and a half to another island called the Negros Occidental, and actually, it was the last place the Japanese occupied in the Philippines in World War II. Is right outside the airport in Bacolod, where I was. And uh, I, will, I can only say that they, they drive motorcycles there, cars, trucks. There's something called a tricycle, which my wife would absolutely own. Uh, it, is a, it, is a, it is a motorcycle with this attachment, a sidecar with an extra tire, and they load stuff in that. They, they put people in that, and they ride them around, and they have, there are no rules at all. They have limited traffic lights. And when I say limited, uh, most major intersections, there was no traffic light at all. And so everybody just chooses their own adventure when they're driving. And I promise you, I, I, do not, I no longer have the same guardian angel I had when I left. <laughs> he died, went to guardian angel heaven, whatever that is. And uh, no, a couple places I was saying to the driver, Pastor Lowell, uh, we're going to be in an accident. We're going to be in an accident. We're about to be in an accident. And he's just un unflustered at all. Just, uh, okay, whatever, you know. Um, that's, that's fine. That's what it's like to drive around there. When I got to Manila on my way home, I used the rideshare app Grab. Lyft and Uber aren't in Manila. So I got to learn what Grab is about. It's very similar. But um, the driver spoke little English, and his GPS system was confusing to him. I don't know how, but we left the hotel, we drove around a bit, and re-arrived at the hotel. And then when I said, this is not going to work. Um, so I pull out my phone, I start trying to give him directions, but, but Google Maps doesn't know that there are neighborhoods in Manila that are private neighborhoods, and you have to have a sticker on your car to go into them. Well, the first time we arrived at a checkpoint with a security guard, I convinced the security guard uh, as an American that I'm just, I'm headed to the airport, my map goes this way, I gotta go this way. He said, fine, go in. Well, we got to the second checkpoint and that guard was not forgiving. And the, and the way out, it was long. I, I had some time, so I wasn't panicked, but I, I thought, I don't wanna turn around. I want to keep going straight. I want to get through this checkpoint. So I start talking. Uh, the driver, they're talking in Ilongo or whatever language they're using. And I, I, I didn't understand them. But I'm saying to the guy, look, I just want to go to the airport. And after about five, seven minutes, the driver says something else 
I see the security guard kind of nod his head, and then the driver opens up the console. He roots around in the console, pulls out a hundred pesos bill, and kind of quietly slips it to the man, who takes it and says, move along. <laughs> now, you need to understand that a hundred pesos is about $1.81. So I was thinking, you bribed the guy for $1.81, I'd have given him five bucks if we could have skipped the seven minutes of haggling. Just say there's a $5 fee for all Americans who don't know what they're doing. And, and just, you know, and just and you just go on your way, pay the five bucks to the security guard. Now you need to understand that minimum wage in, in the Philippines is about $9 a day. So uh, $2 is, is, you know, a couple of hours of work. So that's good for them. But for me, I was going, I would happily give you more money if you'll just let me go on my way. Well, the driver, we went on our way. We actually had one more checkpoint. That was to get out of the private neighborhood. And the guy haggled with us about not having a sticker. And I'm saying from the back seat, but we're leaving. I promise not to come back ever again. Please just let me go where all the happy people are on the other side of the checkpoint. I want to go and live my life and be, be free. And, uh, and he let us go finally. You know, I, I, I think... I think, though, as, as weird and funny as that scenario is, there are a lot of Christian people who kind of live their lives, their Christian lives, and they don't know where they're going at all. You get saved, you go to church, you know, you kind of get the sense of reading your Bible, but there's no real sense of direction. And so when it comes to the problem of sin, one that we all have, all of us, when it comes to that problem, a lot of Christians don't really know what to do. In fact, it isn't until it gets really bad and they go, oh, I've got to do something now. I've got to go talk to the pastor. Uh, you know, I need to, to really listen in church this Sunday. Maybe the pastor will talk about my problem. They don't really know where to go. They don't really know what to do. And because of that, they're kind of guideless. And when you think about sin, this is where the problem becomes most evident. What is the direction of sin? Is it outside in or inside out? I had a conversation with a lady probably 15 years ago, about this very subject. She was homeschooling her son, her children. And I asked her, you know, I'm not against homeschooling. Uh, we have people who homeschool here. Not against homeschooling, not against Christian schooling. I'm not really even against the public school. I, I think each have unique challenges you have to manage. I, I am pro-Christian education. So uh, I would say if I had a choice, I would, I would choose a Christian school. I'm not against the other choices at all. So I said, but why do you, why do, you do this? And, and her response was this. I don't want my children being infected by all the problems of the world. Okay, I get that. We have one problem. You know, it's, it's, the, it's the guy on Apollo 13. Houston, we have a problem. Do you know what it is? All the problems of the world are right in here. If, if you put a brand new baby in a room with no stimuli, that would be cruel, of course, horrible. But in thinking, you could prevent that child from getting any exposure to the outside world. You would still have sin evidence itself in the life of that child. It would happen in some way. Maybe not the way that it happens in the world at large, but it would still be there. Envy, greed, jealousy, anger, it would all be there. And, and you think, if I could somehow insulate myself or my family from those things, if I can protect myself from those things, from the outside, somehow that will save me. And it just doesn't work. 
And American Christianity has been arguing this, not directly, obliquely. We've been arguing this for about the last 60, 75 years. And you have to understand, it's a question Jesus has already answered. Sin problem comes from within. Your sin problem is not external, it's internal. And, and I think you see this in Christian counseling. The counselor says, well, what we need to do is we need to remove this sin from your life in any way we can. And they begin talking about guardrails, that's what they call them, in the life to, to protect you from that sin. And I am okay with the sense of guardrails in a limited sense, but their value is very little because the problem is always internal. It always starts from the inside. And that's really what Jesus is answering. This question, where does sin originate? And you need to understand how man has answered that problem. The answer to man's answer to that problem well, this is point number one. Man's solution to sin is religious ritual. He creates made-up rules that give the appearance of spiritual life. Look at verse 1 again. Here come the Pharisees and the scribes from Jerusalem. When they see his disciples eat, and they haven't ceremonial, ceremonially washed their hands. So they, it's not that they have dirty hands, and, and you know they're just scuzz buckets, right? I mean, these are... These are people who, who are, who are uh, uh, good folks, right? They wash their hands, but they didn't do it ceremonially. Now they're going, wait a minute, that's not right. And then the, he, Mark, because he knows we're Gentiles, and we don't really understand maybe why, he, say, he gives us the reason. The Pharisees, when they come from the market, when they sit down for a meal, they wash their hands, they wash their pots, they, even, they wash all the time. They, they have all these washings. In fact, in a sense, you would call these baptisms. That's really kind of what's going on here. It's, it's kind of a baptism. Then the Pharisees and scribes asked Jesus. But you'll notice here the way they ask it. Why do your disciples, they're following you. Why don't they do this? And really what they're asking is, why don't you perform the rituals that Judaism has laid down? And you need to understand something about ritualism. It looks good. There's a lot that appeals to our flesh about ritualism. I mean, truth be told, I'd love to have a church with lots of stained glass windows. I would. I would love that. Dark wood furniture, stained glass windows. That'd be so nice. Expensive. It'd be so nice. I'd love to have a bronze pulpit. I'm not making that up either. <laughs> I, I have the one in mind. It's it, it's a little, it, forgive me, it's a little too World War II Germany. Uh, it's this eagle with this wing spread and the, the top of the lectern is all across the wings of the eagle, but it looks like a German eagle. And I went, you know, the last thing you want to give the impression to people in Christianity is Nazism. So that may not be the right pulpit for us. But I, did, I, I love it, okay? I love those things. You get kind of in your heart this sense of, of worship and peace from that, right? I mean, there's, a, there's something about ritualism. You go into a Catholic church and you see all the rituals on display, the burning candles, the priests in their vestments, all of the, the language and the rituals, and it looks good. And, and more than that, it creates demands on people. It's not easy to go through all the rituals. You, you have to discipline yourself to go through them, to, to wash your hands all the time, to, to do all that is required of these traditions. And you see that, you say, it requires discipline, and it's beautiful, and you think there is spiritual life here. And I'm telling you, ladies and gentlemen, listen to me. There is danger in those things. 
if we give them life where there is no life. If we think that by standing in a certain way, if we hold our posture in a certain way, that we are more godly or somehow have a greater connection to God or he will listen to us more than if we have our posture in another way, just simply by the angles of our bodies, that's a problem. You want me to give you an example? People who raise their hands in church. I'm not against it. I have no problem with it. If you raise your hand, raise your hand all day long. It's fine. There are some Old Testament passages that talk about raised hands. But I'm telling you, there are people who do it, and it doesn't mean anything. They're just doing it. Okay? Or shouting amen. You want a good Baptist illustration? I was in a church service once. Everybody's shouting amen to everything. Amen! 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 And it just got to be where, you know, they're just wanting attention. And the guy in front of me, he started yelling out weird things. And at one point, here's what he yelled. Shake the bush! And I was thinking, well, what does that mean? You go over to a bush and you shake it real hard. Is this the burning bush? Because I'm trying to give it some sort of spiritual. And, and I'm not saying hand raising or, or kneeling in prayer. I'm all for kneeling in prayer. That's fine. That's good. That's, the, that's a right, humble posture. But if you're doing any of those things because you think by doing them, that makes you more godly, or makes you think God hears you better. That's a problem. Because then the ritualism is self-righteousness. Because what's happening now, it, here's what the Jews are saying. I do these ceremonial washings. I'm not really washing dirt off my hands anymore. My hands are clean. I'm doing them because by doing this, I am saying this, this thing, my hands, my pot, is no longer defiled. The king of Britain is going to be, go through his coronation in May. I don't know if you've been following the saga with his two sons, their wives. It's a soap opera over there, right? Um, I, I, I was laughing to myself reading the British press, trying to explain their condom, really their contempt for Harry, uh, because he wrote this book with all these stories that were really negative, apparently, about the British royal family, and then said, I can't figure out why y'all don't like me. And <laughs> that they were happy to tell him, you know, we'll tell you why we don't like you. Did you know that yesterday, or maybe the day before, it was Saturday in Jerusalem, that the oil that they're going to use to, to crown the British king, that oil was, is from Jerusalem, and it has been ceremonially purified. Whoop-de-doo. Do, do you realize? Here's, here's what's more likely to happen. They got the ceremonial oil, and somebody's going to lose it. And then they're going to be scrambling. And so I got olive oil, and, and it's going to end up just being somebody's olive oil that they got from Lidl, you know, in, in London. Lidl of London olive oil, extra virgin olive oil, you know. It's, that smells kind of like my supper. Yeah, well, you know, that's what's going to happen, probably. It's meaningless. But they think by doing that, somehow they are actually purifying. The thing that's being anointed or washed because it sees the problem of sin as outside in. It's, it's washing the external defilement away. No wonder the Pharisees found fault. And they didn't just find fault with the disciples. No, no. Their question is fault-finding Jesus. Why do your disciples not follow the tradition of the elders. They found fault. With them, with Jesus, that's an accusation. You are a Jewish rabbi, self-appointed, 
And you are not following the traditions of the Jews. This is a big problem, at least in their minds. So while man, he solves the problem of sin with rituals because he thinks it gives the appearance of life, in actuality, letter B, he, the man himself, is false. So Jesus answers in verse 6, Isaiah, he had a way of describing you. Hypocrite! You honor God with your words. You speak your incantations over these pots and pans as if that pleases God. But in your heart, you are miles away from him. There's nothing in your heart at all that's close to God. You reject the commandment of God with your own tradition, verse 9. And then he gives the example of the fifth commandment. You see, those who practice religious rituals, such as the solution to sin, they themselves are hypocrites. They wear a mask. Those, they, 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 and Jesus identifies this as their chief problem. It's because the rituals make a claim that they honor God. But in reality, they do the opposite. So they wash the pots and pans, but they ignore the law of Moses, which is more important. They have tradition, but ignore the very words of God. You want an example? Take the fifth commandment. What is the fifth commandment? Honor your father and mother. Now I will tell you how that has been traditionally interpreted. Westminster Confession is a good example of this. Honor your father and mother is basically obedience to them while you're a child, and then respect your parents as they get old. But I don't believe that really is the best understanding of honoring your parents. I think that's there. There's, I, think it's, I think it's much bigger than that. But clearly the way Jesus is talking here is the way the word honor is used in the New Testament. And that is financial provision for, for elderly parents. So we honor our older, our older people, our elderly, by taking care of them. This is kind of the Jewish social safety net, as it were. And, and when you think about what he's talking about, for example, with the widow that Paul refers to, the widows in the church, we, we honor them. We take care of them financially. And you'll notice that's kind of what he says here. It's, it's, it's more than just respect because he says you need to honor your parents, honor your father and mother. But you, but you say, verse 11, if a man says to his father and mother, it is korban, that is to say a gift, by whatever you might be profited of me, it, 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 I have the means to take care of you, but actually I'm not going to take care of you because this has been given to God. So I can't give it to you. Now the best part of it is it's given to God, but it's still in my house. And I still use it. But I'm not going to give it to you so that you can have it, So even if you need it. Do, do you see how, by this system, you say, I'm honoring God while getting around the fifth commandment? Here's mom and dad. They're needy. They're struggling. I have the means to provide for them so they come, whatever you may be profited of me. Here, here's my stuff. And they see that. And I would say, oh, wait, I would help you. I, I really would. I mean, you were good parents. You fed me. You didn't kill me when you had the chance. You know, you, you could have th thrown me out off a cliff. Uh, you probably wanted to, but you didn't. You were good parents. And I'd love to help you. I would. I would love to give you any of these beautiful treasures that I have. I, I would. I can't. Why can't you? It is Corban. It's a gift to God. So I'd help you. But I'd have to steal from God in order to give to you. You, God, you, God. You're going to lose every time. But it's still in your house, son. Yes, yes, that's true. I've given it to God, and he'll get use of it after I die. That'll be fine. But for now, it's his, not yours. And with my words, I say, but I want you to know 
I really honor you a lot. And mom and dad leave and go off and beg, scrounge for food. While the son or daughter lives in opulence, all the while assuaging any guilt he would have by saying, but I honored God. If you do not take care of your parents in their need, you are not honoring God. And you take your tradition that you've created as a means to get around the requirement of the fifth commandment. And so Jesus says, what is that kind of person? What is the kind of person who says, I honor God when I don't? Who gives the front of loving God, but in that reality does not? What's the word? One who wears a mask. Hypocrite. You are a hypocrite. Because the result of their hypocrisy literally was the annulment of the very word of God. The very ten words in the moral law. And my friends, this is how the Jews were able to get around all of the moral commands. They could murder people. Remember Jesus Remember Jesus talked about loving your neighbor and gave the story? Uh, he's, he's about to give the story of the Good Samaritan. He talks about loving your neighbor. And you remember what the guy says to him? Well, well, who's my neighbor? And if you ask a child who's your neighbor, a child's going to go, well, all the people live around us. No, son, you haven't grown up yet. You don't, you're not wise. Your neighbor is only the people you like. <laughs> and we don't like very many people. We tolerate people. We don't like them very much. So... You only really have to be neighborly to a select few. The rest you can kind of ignore. And Jesus says, no, that's wrong. And when you, when you walk through what, what Jesus is saying here, he's clearly saying the problem is you see sin as outside in. You, you have created a system that allows you to live in sin while thinking you're clean. Because your heart is evil, but you cleanse the outside. Flip it around then. That's man's solution. Friends, that's still man's solution. That is Catholicism. That is Mormonism. You, you take the religions of the world. That's Hinduism, really. I mean, it's a completely different system because you have reincarnation. Life, death, birth, rebirth, or life, death, rebirth, life, death, rebirth. And they have this cycle where you're working toward complete enlightenment in nirvana. But ultimately, it's a system of you're, you're trying to do good things as if that somehow purifies you. And you flip it all the way around. Jesus says, no, that's not the solution. The solution's different. The solution is actually... Following me. Jesus says, follow me. Following him. That's the solution. And he outright rejects the doctrine of external defilement. There is nothing, not one thing. That's what the word nothing means. No thing, right? Nothing. That comes out of a man. From without a man. Sorry, not out of a man. From without a man. Nothing from without a man. Outside in that entering into him can defile him. Uh, you cannot be defiled by outside things coming into your life. The things which come out of him, those are the defiling things. Do you see the way Jesus, he flips it entirely around? Washing ceremonially your pots and pans doesn't keep you from defilement because you're inherently defiled. There is no doctrine of external defilement. It's a diametrically opposed solution. Nothing outside of man makes him impure. What makes a man impure is what's in his heart. And that's your problem and mine. Friends, listen, this is our problem. Our sin is in here. 
True sanctification works inside to outside. God changes us inside out. You get a man who gets saved. This was more common in, in the last century. Man gets saved. We're going to cut his hair, get him new clothes, get him off cigarettes. And, and all the while, and, and, I'm, and I'm okay with those things. He might need a haircut. He, he shouldn't smoke cigarettes. It's not good for you. It was amazing. It wasn't cut his hair and get him off, you know, 6,000 daily carbohydrates. <laughs> yeah, because we all have a sugar addiction. We won't talk about that one. No, it's, it's we're going to do all these external things to him. I'm, I'm okay with some of that. Well, my problem is, is if I'm not dealing with the real issue, what's inside your heart? If I think for a moment it is those external things that are somehow making me impure, and I've got to protect my family from them, I've got to protect my wife and myself from them, I'm somehow trying to further distance myself from the world, almost in a monastic sort of sense, where I'm going to keep taking another step away and another step away. Do you know what system, what religion created that? Catholicism, about, a, about a 1,500 years ago, and the Amish. And I'm going to tell you, it's in the process of happening again within American Christianity. The world is corrupt. And it's just becoming more evident how corrupt it is. It was always corrupt. We just didn't see it as much. Now we see it all the time. Its corruption is, is evident. I was playing around on the music section of the, of the uh, um, in-flight entertainment. And I was just all over the place. I was listening to Japanese country music. <laughs> I, I'm not a fan of that, I discovered. It's a little different, you know, to hear a twang with people speaking in Japanese, singing in Japanese. Uh, I guess if I, I listened to a lot, I could get into it, but I, I, I'm not. I'm not a fan of that. But I, I, was, I was going through, I mean, there were a lot of, I got to tell you, Japanese airlines is not my favorite, favorite airlines. I do know that. But I was going through, and I got, and I got to uh, an American pop section, and I looked at all the choices, and, and a choice came up, and I was reading it. It said, if Jesus was a rock star, that was the name of the song. Did you know there's a song, if Jesus was a rock star? Yeah. If you do, nobody's going to admit it, right? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Not, not me. I don't know. Let's look away. Look, look somewhere else. Yeah. No. Okay. I will grant you I've never heard of Kim Petrus and, and her song, If Jesus Was a Rockstar, until the other day. So I said, I've got to hear this. So I clicked on it. Well, up comes this song. And basically the song is, is essentially, if Jesus was a rock star who lived the rock star kind of lifestyle. You know, he's closing down the bar. He's, he's uh, uh, drinking away the pain, like Kurt Cobain. Some of you don't even know who Kurt Cobain was. He, he was a Seattle musician. He was very popular in grunge music back in the early 2000s. Committed suicide. But she ends the line, if, if Jesus was a rock star, and this is how he was, then I would want to be just like him. And I was sitting there going, that is blasphemy. I'm just, okay, you know, when the Beatles came out and they said, we're more popular than Jesus, and everybody went, well, you know, that was bad. That's blasphemy too, okay? But that was kind of blasphemy that I almost can tolerate because I know he's an unbeliever and that's wicked and, and I have nothing to do with that. But this is like a whole new level of blasphemy. And, you, and you, you see that and go, okay, that's evil. The world's evil. I get that. All world around me is bad. So I'm going to insulate myself and somehow that will purify me. This is essentially what the Jews were creating. And it doesn't understand that, that I have to realize sanctification is inside out. I can't even judge a man's spirituality by his outside. I, I hate to say this. 
I, I, I consider church a formal event. That's why I wear a coat and tie, okay? Just because I consider it a formal event. And when I go to a formal event, this is what I wear, all right? I go to a wedding, I wear a coat and tie. I go to a funeral, I wear a coat and tie. I wear a coat and tie. I don't think there's anything godly about a coat and tie. Um, the Romanians came up with this. We can play John and his family uh, for that. That was There's nothing godlier about a tie and less godly about a tie. I don't go when people come in the door, godly, godly, ungodly, really ungodly. I don't think of it that way. There's nothing super godly about a woman whose garment has one giant leg hole or two individual <laughs> leg holes. There's one doesn't make you more godly than the other. Do you see what I'm saying here? And I think there are reasons why you do what you do. Like I said, it's formal, so I dress in formal clothes. These aren't church clothes. These are formal clothes. You understand where I'm coming from? Okay, you got that. But I know the people who say, I, I'm traveling and I don't have my formal clothes, so I'm not going to go to church because I feel really uncomfortable being there. And why is that? I'm afraid it's because too many of us have been conditioned to think if you don't dress a certain way, you're not godly. And that's bad. I don't judge you by your clothing. I don't judge you by your haircut. Well, I do a little bit, but that's, it's, a, it's worldly judging, okay? It's not biblical judging. I go, wow, somebody talk, turn into that one, you know. I, I know. Yeah, you understand what I'm talking about, right? But I don't think you're more godly, ladies, because you wear dress over pants. And I, men, I don't think you're more godly if you're wearing a tie or a coat. In fact, I came to the conclusion a few years ago, if you wear a coat in the summer, you might need to see somebody professionally. Because <laughs> it's so hot outside. I, I, just, I just don't judge by that. And I think we have to be careful that we don't judge by that. You see, the problem, this is letter B, our inherent problem is wickedness. Material things cannot defile me because they're material things. They're physical. The things that man consumes pass through his body. The key verse, it goes into his belly, not his heart. And so I eat something, it doesn't go into my heart. Oh, it goes into my physical heart later, and my form of cholesterol, you understand. But it doesn't go into my heart, spiritual heart. It cannot defile me, verse 18. It's impossible. But let me tell you what defiles me. Let me tell you what's inside me. There's a different story. And here Jesus is giving a testimony for every human being other than himself, every human being who's ever lived. Pastor, missionary, godly grandmother who's on her knees praying for her grandkids, every single human being. Here's the words Jesus said about the human heart. Within the human heart are sexual sins, hurting other people, lying, unrestrained sin, speaking bad words against God and other people, arrogance and folly. And that's only a partial list. He, ran, he just ran out of time. Probably Mark just was tired of writing it all down, right? Peter writing it all down. In other words, you die, you sit on a table, they're going to do, do surgery on you post-mortem to figure out why you died, right? So they open you up, the doctor opens you up, does that little why thing on your chest. They open, open you up. That's gross. I, I wouldn't want to do that, not for all the money in the world, but there, I'm glad there are people who do. And they, they look inside and they're going, oh, yeah, I can see here. Wow, that guy, he, you look at his lungs. He must have been a heavy smoker. I worked at a coal mine. You know, look at his lungs. Look at his heart. What kind of food has he been eating? You know, they're probably going through the guy's mind there. He can, all he can look are the physical effects of living in a sin-cursed world. But he, he looks inside there. You know what he can't see? He can't really see the human Heart, immaterial heart. Because if he could open that door up, do you know what he would find? Evils so unimaginable, it would scare him to death. I mean, I mean, you children in here, listen, if you're under the age of 18, listen, listen to me. Your parents are wonderful people. They brought you to church. That's a good thing. They have the capacity for evil in them that you cannot possibly imagine. 
They know that. They've protected you from that in some ways. And that's good. That's, you, you don't need to know those things. But as you get older, you're going to discover that in your heart are going to be things that you can't believe are there. You're going to go, I have feelings. I have emotions. I have thoughts that are awful. Yes, you do. Because you're like everybody else. We all do. You say, Pastor, you have those thoughts and feelings? Yes, I do. Because I have a human heart. I have the ability to commit any sin that has ever been committed. I could do those sins. Absolutely. Thank God for his restraining Holy Spirit, right? And while I'm all for not... I, I, I think the, a wrong reaction to a message like this would be, okay, so you're saying it's everything out that defiles a man, so we're going to let our kids just see everything. You know, it's five-year-olds here. Here's the, here's the world. Consume it. It's evil. That's not good for them, right? We understand that. There's, there's a blessing to being naive, and we want our children to be a little naive for as long as we can in some ways. But we must teach them that the capacity for every evil is inside of them. And when, they're, when little Johnny or little Bobby Sue is five years old and she's got her little hands in a little fist and praying, God, I don't know why I disobey mommy. We kind of smile or, you know, a little tear. Oh, that's precious. Understanding that little Bobby Sue who disobeys mommy could grow up to be evil Bobby Sue who robs a bank and murders people in cold blood. And it isn't because she was just a little bit evil then and a lot evil now. She was just as evil then. Because the whole capacity of the whole evil of the human race is in every one of our hearts. And the only answer is Jesus. He says, I love this. He, he doesn't really give a full answer here, okay? He doesn't say, okay, so here's the answer, right? It would be nice if he did because then it would make the sermon so easy. But he doesn't do that. Instead, what he's just saying to them is, listen to me. If you want to understand sin, listen to Jesus. He's going to explain it to you. And when the disciples can't understand, he says, do you lack understanding? Listen to me. I love verse 16. If you have ears, listen. And that idea is more of listening. It's hearing the words of God and heeding the words of God. Listen to Jesus' words. That's tantamount to being a biblical believer. I am going to follow the words of Jesus. I'm going to listen to God's word, and I'm going to follow it. That, that's the Christian life. And this is essentially what Jesus is saying. Come and listen to me. And what was against that? The tradition of the elders. This is, this is essentially why they're going to murder him later. That and their financial greed, because he keeps kicking the people out of the, the money changers out of the temple. He says, no, the traditions of the elders, that's completely wrong. You come and listen to me. Be a follower of me. And Jesus is still making that claim for every single one of us. I have a problem. I have a wicked heart. I have a solution. I have a Christ that I can follow. And I follow him every day of my life. And the Holy Spirit and the word of God help me to grow spiritually, to fight the evil from within. And maybe you can see it reflected on the outside. Yesterday I was so tired. After being up for about 30 hours, I was so tired. I was in JFK airport and my boarding pass was wrong. It wasn't really wrong. It was a little wrong. So I went to the lady, and I was so tired, I thought, at any moment, I could lose my temper. This is what I was thinking to myself. I don't want to do that. It's never good. Plus, they have a big sign that says, if you yell or abuse our agents, it's fine, punishable, up to $13,969 or something like that. And I thought, they couldn't put $14,000? I mean, this, now I'm getting angry about that. I mean, why would you put it at such a weird number? Uh, let's see. I got $13,900, but I only got, I only got $47. Bucks. No, you're going to jail. You know, I mean, you can't round down or round up. 
Anyway, I mean, such is New York politics. So I go, okay, yeah, sure. So I, so I went up to a lady and I said, hi, I'm so tired that I've decided the only way that I'm going to get through the day is to be nice. So I'm going to smile and tell you my boarding pass is wrong and I need your help. And she goes, oh, yeah, go talk to that lady. No line. Thank the Lord. So I walk over to the lady and said, hi, I am so tired that I really, I really don't want to be here. But my boarding pass is wrong. She went, oh, no problem. Print. Here, here's a new boarding pass. I walk over. Here you go. Joke with the lady a little bit. I'm now in line. And I thought, oh, thank you, Lord, because my flesh wanted to go. Are you people crazy? What is wrong if you have one job? <laughs> one. To move people from this side of a rope to this side of a rope. But I decided I just needed to be kind. Thank you, Lord. Because that wasn't in my heart. To follow him. To listen to what he says. And to do what he says. That's the answer. It's not from outside in, ladies and gentlemen. The problem's in here. How are we going to solve the problem in here? Jesus Christ. He's the answer to every sin problem we face. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for our time together this morning in your word. And I pray, dear God, that you would help us to uh, better face our sin head on, to deal with it as we should. Before I finish praying, you just answer in your own heart, how is your approach on sin? Is it inside out or outside in? Be honest with yourself. Have you been trying to fight your sin simply by limiting exposure to the world? Or have you really said, in my heart is all of this junk, and that's where the problem is, and that's where I'm going to fight it, by following Jesus. It's going to be inside. And if you're here this morning to say, you know, Pastor, the Holy Spirit of God was speaking to me because I've not really been fighting my sin on the inside. I've been kind of fighting it on the outside. If, the, if, if God's Spirit is speaking to you that specifically, I'd like to pray for you. Is there anybody like that? Would you? Yes, ma'am. Who else? Yes, ma'am. Yes, sir. Anybody else? Pastor, that's yes, sir. Thank you. Praise God. I'll pray for you. Anybody else? Pastor, pray for me. Lord, please help us. Help us all to fight this internal battle with ourselves. With the Spirit's help, the Word's guidance and enablement to your glory. In Jesus' name. Amen. Let's stand to our feet. The pianist will play a brief hymn of invitation. You pray that this would be how we approach our sin problems here at our church.